Welcome to Gringo in Latin America, episode number two. Uh, Gringo in Latin America is powered by Arte Agave. Arte Agave is a celebration of Latin culture through music, heritage, tequila, and mascal. Check out Arte Agave coming to a city near you. In this episode, we talk with the founder of Illegal Mascal, John Rexer. Uh, if you are a budding entrepreneur, this is the podcast for you. John is um, pretty much <laughs> a self-starter, has no fear, uh, figures things out, a problem solver all in one, plus overall great person, started an amazing Mezcal brand, uh, celebrates music and artists, um, and just has created this amazing culture with Illegal Mezcal. Check out his story. <laughs> uh, if you want to know a little bit of Entrepreneurship 101 and how to get over the first level, um, listen to this one. This is not for the Harvard graduates. These are for the hustlers. Enjoy this episode. And we are live. Uh, John, I'm super pumped uh, to be talking to you, man. And uh, thanks for taking the time. Um, how are you? How are you holding up? And, you know, what's going on with you down in, you're in Guatemala, what's happening down there with, you know, with the COVID and, you know, how, how are you holding up with the family and everything? So what's happening on your end? Well, man, it's, it's, I guess it's as, as crazy here as, as everywhere else. Um, so th this country has now been on pretty much lockdown for two solid weeks, actually going into the third week and it's scheduled through at least the middle of April, but most likely the end of April. So that means the airport's been shut down completely for two weeks. No planes going in or out except diplomatic planes and some cargo stuff. And uh, there's a curfew. So wow. between 4 p.m. So I have, to, I have to get out of here by, 4 p, by about 3.30 my time, no matter what, because there's a curfew from 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. And all bars and restaurants are closed. Uh, all non-essential businesses are closed, so it's pretty. Um, it's, yeah, it's pretty tight. strange because this is a real tourist town, and it's a it's a beautiful old, almost six hundred year old colonial town. Uh, yeah, know. and now that that's that's where you live, right? You you live you live there, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've lived yeah. here since two thousand three, so about seventeen years. Nice man. All right, so I you know listen, I'm very familiar with you and the illegal team. I mean, you know, obviously, I'm from New York, so. You know, I know the crew up there and we've done a bunch of events together. So I'm very familiar with your story, or at least I thought I was fully familiar. I was reading up on the website last night and kind of your, you know, how you started. And, you know, I was just like blown away by, you know, you've got like the, our story on your website and the, the details of your beginning, um, you know, it's almost like you can't make this stuff up kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm just excited to sort of talk to you. And I know you probably told the story of the beginning many times, um, but I'd kind of like to hear it a little again, you know, from you um, just on the beginning of Illegal Mascal and, you know, I guess, you know, 2003, 2004, what was going on? What were you trying to do? How did it, how did it all sort of begin? And, you know, I guess if people don't know, I mean, for me, I always thought like, the story was, yeah, I just took a few bottles over the border, and that's kind of the cafe no say and how illegal started. But I know there's a lot more detail to that, so maybe you can kind of start with you know 2003, 2004, and what was going on in your life at that time. Yeah, um, yeah, no, you know, back I, I moved down here sort of post 9/11, and I wanted to be out of the states. I, things were getting getting weird, and I just I was probably in a place like a lot of people, I wanted to be on the outside 
looking in and and uh, just away from a lot of the anger and stuff that was going on at that time. So, um, you know, I was probably you know suffering some from some pretty heavy cognitive dissonance, and so I. Uh, Woke up one day and decided, you know what, I'm just, I'm cutting out of New York. I had very little money, a couple thousand bucks, and I decided to roll down to Mexico and um, managed to live down in Mexico uh, in Quintana Roo for several months and uh, ended up in Guatemala really by chance and ended up in Guatemala uh, really not knowing where I was going and what my next steps were in my life and all of this stuff, you know, just, just one of those things. I think a lot of people had that, you know, kind of life change at that time. And I made my way down to Guatemala. And when I landed here, I was really fairly uh, penniless. Actually, I was quite penniless. And by a series of, you know, fate and, and good fortune and weird luck, I managed uh, and I wasn't trying it was a rainy rainy afternoon and I was you know Guatemala has these torrential horrific rainy seasons that are actually they're wonderful but it's and I was walking down the street of Guatemala wondering what the hell am I doing with my life and I've got no money and it started to rain and rain like crazy and I was walking down the street trying to get out of the rain and there was a for rent sign on a on a door of a house and I figured fuck it I'm just going to knock on the door and see, you know, see if someone opens the door and <laughs> a elderly Guatemalan gentleman opened the door and said, come in and would you, you're looking at renting the place. And I, you know, heard come out of my own mouth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he said, what are you thinking of doing here? I said, um, you know, just sort of, in, and I did have a few beers in me. I said, you know, man, I'm, I'm thinking of maybe opening a bar and maybe a little bookstore and a restaurant. And we got talking and somehow in the space of 20 minutes of speaking, and at that time, my Spanish was pretty horrific, pigeon Spanish, and him, he's speaking, you know, broken English. Um, I ended up renting a place and he gave me essentially about three months free rent. And I had about 400, truly $400 left to my name. And I moved into this beautiful, broken down, old colonial house in beautiful Antigua, Guatemala. And I mean, very broken down house. And um, with the very little money I had left, what a hammer and, and uh, you know uh, a saw. And there was broken lumber in the back and pieces of old metal because it had been a welding shop at one point and began to build a bar. So that's, I mean, that's a little sort of preamble. And, and I only tell yeah. that part because... Um, I opened this place and I opened it. It was on the other side of town. There was no tourism on this side of town. And I managed to have by mistake, not intentionally, and this was pre everybody opening, you know, trendy speakeasies, but my mistake, I, and because of lack of funds, I essentially had an illegal bar and a speakeasy because I truly was an illegal bar. I had no signs. I had no licenses. And yet I was, I had live, I got some musicians to play in here. I started running a poker game, and <laughs> um, and I, you know, an all night poker game starting every sun Sunday night and Wednesday night, starting at about nine o'clock, running until nine o'clock in the morning, and it was wonderful. And the town at that time, back in two thousand three, this is in two thousand three now, was still was going through a, a phase that it, the town was really quite lawless, which was very much to my 
benefit. That's changed a lot over the years. But back then, that was very much to my benefit. And the place began to take off and get a, a cult following because I truly, from before I, before I actually opened the door, I had live music playing. I had musicians in here who came in and saw me building a place and said, hey, can we practice? So I had a live music before I even opened, and we started to have live music, then a poker game. And the place eventually took off and became quite successful, which was pretty cool. And, wow. Um, and with that, about a year into this, maybe a year and a half into this, the same landlord came to me and he said, you know, I have that space ne- a space next door and I, I want to rent it. And would you like it? And I wasn't making any money. I was still, you know, I was barely making, I wasn't making ends meet. I was living in the bar. I was, I had a backpack. I was sleeping on benches in the bar at night and I was selling beer and whatever I could out the window at four or five o'clock in the morning, truly to make ends meet. And I just thought, man, if I don't rent his place that is next door, I'm going to get somebody else who moves in, who doesn't like loud music, who doesn't like nightlife, who doesn't, and I'm going to have problems. So I rented it. And this is how essentially Illegal started. Because when I rented it, I thought, what the hell am I going to do with this space? And I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I, I, the, the building is so big, I don't even know what I'm doing with my existing bar. And I thought, man, you know what? It would be cool to put in here a little agave spirits bar. I love it. I had lived in Mexico. Years prior to that, I had lived in Oaxaca. I knew some great places that made mezcal. And I thought, man, um, I'm, I'm going to bring mezcal down here. No one does it. I love it. And let's see, let's, let's see if it happens. So uh, it was two small rooms, one that was on the street and the other that was directly behind it. And I started to build it out and I started to build out the, the, the front room on the street as a mezcal bar. And the landlord came to me and said, what are you doing? You know, there's a, a school next door. You can't have a bar next to, right, next to a, right next door to a school. So I said, shit, man, this is not good. Um, and I said, wait a minute, but I've always wanted a bookstore. What happens if I shove a bookstore right in front of the bar so that when you walk in, you have to come in through a bookstore and then you go into the second room? He said, perfect, that works. So <laughs> I was back again almost in the speakeasy business by accident. And um, So building this out frantically did not have, again, I was truly living hand, hand to mouth, paying you know, every bill in cash, I still barely had a single license and was barely legal and didn't know how I was going to, you know, like you, you sometimes you move so quickly, you don't think of like the, the most important stuff and yeah. being, <laughs> um, you know, a bit, a bit naive and a bit foolish. I just thought I was going to be able to find some good good agave spirits that had been cro- brought across the border into Guatemala and that I was going to be able to make this agave slash mezcal bar happen overnight. And so I went out to the local supermarket, the local tiendas, the, the few liquor distributors, and not only did nobody have mezcal, nobody had tequila. The only tequila you could get was Jose Cuervo, and every now and then you might be able to find one random bottle of something else. I was like, oh, man. So I was like, all right, this, the only way I'm going to be able to do this is road trip, go back up to Oaxaca and go back to the places that I knew, go cross the border from Guatemala, go up through Mazatenango, up through Cuatapeque, cross over the border at Tecuman, travel up through Tapachula and head 
north towards Oaxaca and go to the places that I knew in Oaxaca from years ago, go to Matatlan and Sola de Vega and all these places and buy mezcal and bring it down to my bar. So that was really, uh, and at that point, really, it was really sort of, I mean, real sort of desperation. I told everybody, hey, I'm opening an agave bar. Hey, this is going to happen. And suddenly, oops, no product, right? <laughs> and I really mean no product. So that sent me, I w- you know, like, oh, man, I got to do this quickly. So um, had a friend, the, the first, first trip was a friend who drove me up to the border uh, at Tapachula. And then from there, I took a bus up to Oaxaca and then got off before you get to the center of Oaxaca and stopped off in a little town, hired a guy, a flete. Flete is basically a driver with a pickup truck and said, man, you know, I'll pay you for a couple of days and here are the towns I want to go to. Let's drive around and collect some mezcal. Where, so, where did you find him? So the guy who drove the truck, you just found him up, up in Oaxaca randomly or how did you, like, how did you find these people? <laughs> okay. So there's a, there's a bus, you know, the, there's a bus service, first class and a second class bus service that runs all through Mexico. Uh, Cristobal Colon, Adeo, uh, Estrella Blanca. These are different bus lines. And I would usually catch a, what's called an Adeo bus, A-D-O. And it's about a 14-hour bus ride out of Tapachula, which is a very southern town in Chiapas. And take that bus all the way up. And that, it goes right to the center of Oaxaca City. But what I would do is, just as you were coming into Oaxaca, and usually by the time you're coming into Oaxaca, it's five, six, seven in the morning. The sun is coming up because it's an overnight bus. Um, and as I was looking out the window, if I could see a, a small town in the distance, I would you know, you'd pull a little string and it would ring a little bell and let the bus driver know you want to get out. And I would get there and walk to the town, get a cup of coffee or, or wait for a place to open if a place wasn't open and ask somebody if they knew somebody who had a flat day, a, you know, a pickup truck. And hire it for the day, and you know, with a driver. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun, uh, a lot of fun, and uh, and then you know what I would usually do is I would say, hey, do you know someone in this town who makes good mezcal? And they, you know, invariably they would say, well, maybe not in this town, but the next town over, or my uncle makes mezcal, and so we'd drive and go and visit his uncle or a cousin or somebody he knew or somebody who somebody knew and go to a little Palenque. A Palenque is uh, basically a small farm distillery. Um, and I would meet the owner, usually the owner and the owner's family, and ask if I could try their mezcal um, and look at their, you know, if they were distilling at that time, watch how they were making it. And if I liked it, I would buy mezcal, what they say, a granel, which basically means unbottled. And it's usually at still strength, although not always. And I would buy a granel, meaning unbottled or um, in a, you know, an unbranded bottle. And usually in, and you're usually buying it actually, oddly enough, in, in, at the, in plastic containers, plastic jugs that come in two, five and 10 liter jugs. So depending on how much I liked it, um, and you know, how much I liked the process and, um, I would, you know, buy a particular quantity. And at the time I was traveling with a Polaroid camera and a notebook and I would take 
pictures of the production process. Um, and, you know, because every place does something a little differently. Some places use clay pot stills, others copper stills, some still, almost everybody still uh, distills at least twice, but some three or four times, uh, you know, some age, some don't age, some store in glass, uh, you know, uh, everybody's got their different way of doing something. And so I would film the process and, uh, and hopefully make a friend and buy some and then move on to the next Palenque. Sometimes I would stay a day in one town, sometimes just a couple hours and then move on to the next and gather enough mezcal, usually no more than about 30 liters, 25, 30 liters, because that's what I could Basically, you know, let's say make a contribution to the bus company, meaning pay a, a small little bribe and be able to stick it under a bus and get it across the border uh, without too much problem and back into Guatemala. Wow. <laughs> so as you started getting busier, um, like, I mean, you know, did you did you start bringing more and more over? Or like, how did it? How did it develop? I mean, did it go from a few bottles to a lot of bottles to, I think I read there was a pallet that you bought at one point. I mean, am I right saying that? Or, you know, how, yeah. did, how did the growth? It got, so, you know, I brought it back and I didn't really realize that this little mezcal bar would take off. When I say mezcal bar, it was really, you know, originally sort of an agave bar because I was bringing in tequila. Um, I was bringing in a, a, a few, I was bringing in this thing called, Comiteco, which is sort of like mezcal out of Chiapas. So I had a few other things in there. Um, and I didn't realize it would really become the focal point of the bar. But when I came back, I would come back and show people these Polaroids uh, that I had taken. And they were, you know, quite intrigued by the, the process, which is truly, you know, it's, 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 as you're probably aware, it's really an amazingly simple and yet beautiful artisanal and that, that word gets kicked around so much, but it truly is that process usually made by people who are putting so much care and attention. And there is, there is romance in it because you are in the countryside in a place where time is very, very different and it even becomes more different when you drink mezcal. And so, um, I, it became popular, and I found myself having to run back up to Oaxaca every 10 days and spend a week up there just to restock my bar with mezcal. Wow. And, so, <laughs> and I started bringing friends with me, sometimes one friend, sometimes two friends, because then we could get more under a bus and more back to the bar. And, um, and I started developing you know, relationships, and about probably, when I say relationships with uh, people who either usually they were the owners or the oldest person, the family member who ran the Palenque. I became friends with several of them. And one day, um, one of them looked at me and he's like, John, what the hell are you doing? You know, you look, you know, you're, you're exhausted and why you just keep coming up and back and forth. And, you know, why don't you buy a lot of mezcal? And I said, what do you mean a lot? And he said, well, you know, why don't you, you know, why don't you, we bottle up a lot of this and why don't you buy a pallet? And I'm like, what's a pallet, man? I don't, what, what are you talking about? And you know, I know what the wooden pallet looks like that things are moved on, but what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, about 600 bottles or so. And I was like, are you kidding me, man? I, I have trouble getting, you know, 
30 across the border. What are you talking about? And he, he said something that I've come to learn to love in Latin America and certainly love in Mexico, but he, you know, an expression I've heard very often, but you know, no te preocupes. Don't worry about it, man. Yo tengo un tío. I have an uncle. And his uh, uncle happened to be somebody who, let's just say, was a facilitator at the border. Let's put it that way. Let's just say he was somebody who helped um, move things from one side of the border to the next without them necessarily having all or any documentation. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, yep. Yeah. So it was good. It was actually, uh, it was a lot of fun. So we, I mean, it, fun and not fun. Uh, but I said, all right, let's, uh, you, you mean to tell me that we can, you know, I can do something with your uncle at the border to get 600 bottles from one side to the next. And because all that, here's the thing at that time, almost no mezcal was certified for export. Nothing had, nothing was certified for to move across borders internationally and taxation hadn't been set up on it. And more than that, all these little palenques really only made mes by and large made mezcal for their small town or village or made it enough for their town and village and then the rest to be collected and sold into the tourist market of Oaxaca. So mm. none of this was like, you know, buying a bottle of Jack Daniels or a bottle of, you know, Bacardi, you know, all legal booze. This was really booze that could not move freely across borders. So, yeah. So, um, I, I, my intention was never to, you know, engage in this kind of activity, but I was, I, I like to describe myself as a, a foolish bar owner who suddenly had a supply problem. <laughs> you seem you seem like someone who is a problem solver. Is that something that just started when you moved to Guatemala or is that you've always been that kind of person? Like when you were super young, did you like have a lemonade stand? Like were you like what kind of kid were you like growing up? I think it's it's funny that you said that cuz I I um yeah, I mean, I come from a very big family, and from a very early age, we were always, always working. And when I read things down here about, you know, oh my God, kids are working at ten years old on coffee farms, and isn't that horrible? Actually, I, I it's it's not horrible. I, I know the coffee farms down here very well, and it's actually cool. The kids are working usually right alongside their parents and everybody else, and it doesn't mean they don't have a very hard life. But it's not the the way it's portrayed, and certainly my childhood growing up was was not anywhere anywhere near as hard as that, and, and by any stretch of the imagination. But we were always working since we were little kids. I mean, whether I mean really working, you know. Uh, I, I remember ten years old. I was truly painting houses, um, and you know, and it was great. And we were all. Yeah, I think everybody did that back in you know the you know mid to late sixties. People were used to kids working. Um, yeah. And, uh, so yeah, yes, I had, I had many a business as a little kid and as a teenager and as a all along. Yeah. So, so it was just basically in your DNA, hard work. It didn't matter. Riding 14 hours for a bus, getting some mezcal was just another day in the life. It was just kind of a normal thing. So, you know, definitely your upbringing, um, led you to be the kind of the person, you know, who you were in that beginning, 
um which is which is cool man yeah that's, that's awesome and i kind of grew up the same way my you know i was doing odd jobs and you know mowing lawns at you know in fifth grade and you know so i i get it i get it it's my dad was very very much uh get a job if you want something get a job you can get it so um that's cool man so so you got yourself a pallet <laughs> Um, did that help? So then you you couldn't go, you didn't have to go up there as often that, that keeps the supply going for a while or. How yeah. Was, I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, it, it kind of kept on making the problem worse, right? Because, um, it, it became more and more popular and more and more visible. And Antigua is, as I was saying, this, you know, famous world heritage colonial town. Um, that's, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's it's famous for so many things, right? The the architecture, the 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 archaeology, uh, the volcanoes, the active volcanoes, the beautiful lake, all of these things. And so you have a lot of tourists here, and, and depending on the year, and that year, you know, there's, there's a lot of journalists who come through, in particular during election years, and so people started writing about the bar, um, which made it even more uh, pro- well, I wouldn't say problematic. It was great. They started writing about this crazy little bar in Antigua, Guatemala, that had a poker game running from you know nine o'clock at night until nine in the morning. Live music, uh, a mezcal bar, and um, and that started hitting places like FT, Financial Times in London. It hit the New York Times, uh, a couple of Condé Nast magazines, and the next thing I know, it's now three or four years later, and we're doing this and the cocktail resurgence of the cocktail culture was just beginning to happen. And I start getting emails and, and phone calls from people. Hey, can we get your brand of mezcal? Because people are interested in, you know, I guess more authentic handmade spirits. And I didn't even know what a mixologist was. I mean, what's a mixologist? I don't get it. Um, and, and so I would write people back saying, hey, I don't have a brand, but you know, if you ever have a friend who passes through Antigua or if I'm ever up in New York or LA or if someone's going to London, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll decant the bottle into something else and put a label on it and send it over to you. I hope you enjoy it, you know? And that, I think, you know, uh, timing's, you know, one of those weird things. And my opening of the Mezcal Bar and people writing about it happened to coincide with the very, very, very early days of the resurgence of the cocktail culture and people writing about that. And in short order, we had people really asking, you know, were we going to start a brand? Did we have a brand? Could we get your booze? And at that point, I suddenly thought, you know, this is interesting. I've, I love Oaxaca. I love, I absolutely love Mezcal. Um, there's probably only a handful of foreigners, extranjeros, who at that time really knew a lot of the, a lot of the good palenques. Maybe there were many, but there weren't many who were actually buying it in quantity and developing relationships. And I thought, hmm, you know what? Maybe this would be interesting to start a brand. I don't know anything really about the liquor business besides owning a bar. But um, if we're going to do it, let's do it really slowly. Let's do it out of the back of my bar. 
Let's develop everything in-house, every little bit of it. Let's attach it to music and the culture that we've built in the bar, which is fun. I don't want this to be just about liquor because that's interesting, but uh, you know, let's make this bigger and more fun than that. And, and let's do it really slowly because I got no reason to rush and see it, just see if it works. Take it, you know, one step at a time and, 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 and go from there. And first step is let's see if we can even get this stuff legal into Guatemala before we try to export it to the rest of the world. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, it's kind of, is really, it's, and so that's what we did. I mean, I sat down and I thought, okay, I want every little bit of this for, I grabbed a group of guys, a friend who was a, a graphic designer, who was Guatemalan, who hung out in the bar and uh, another friend who was managing my bar at the time from Australia. And they all wanted to be involved. And I said, guys, there's zero money in this. I don't even know how I'm paying, you know, my rent for my bar next month. But if you want to be a part of it, you know, come on in and, you know, I can feed you and give you some drinks. And then as this evolves, we'll, we'll pay everybody a little bit and see what happens. And so we just took it day by day. And um, very oddly, um, I, f- I forget exactly how this happened, but there was a, a, a mixologist or whatever you call these guys who had... Uh, asked for some of our mezcal and somehow I had gotten it to him in New York. And I don't know if this was 2000, it was probably around 2009. He won the star chef's award for making cocktails. And I think it was the first time star chefs actually invited um, people who made drinks to actually be able to win awards in the, in the star chef uh, competition. And so he won and he wrote me and said, Hey man, I need, you know, eight cases of your mezcal. And I wrote him back and said, I don't, I don't, we don't, I don't have a brand of mezcal, man. I just stuck labels on a box and sent it to you as a gift. And, and he said, well, I need it because I just won it and I got to make the cocktail with your mezcal. And what are we going to do? And I said, Oh shit. All right. So I, we labeled up some more, bottles and put them in cases that look somewhat official. And since you can only get so many bottles, if you fly into the States, you know, you can only bring in whatever it is, you know, four liters, something like that. I grabbed a couple of friends and said, guys, we're going to New York and you're bringing a case up. You're bringing a case up. You're bringing a case up. You guys all got a free trip because this could be interesting. And while we were, and so we did, we got him booze. He made wonderful cocktails and we went to the Star Chef's uh, celebration. And while we were there, we got approached by an importer who asked if they could be our importer. And they were our very first importer for a couple of years. So a lot of this stuff just happened, you know, by good fortune. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's incredible. <laughs> so then you're, um, you know, the, I mean, then, then what? Then you're, you're, bottling full-time or what 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 takes off or what how does it you know you getting someone to print your labels and you know kind of what's what's the process of saying okay we're officially like a liquor brand well i mean you go through all those things right i mean you there's a thing called the the it was called commercam back then it's called the crm now it's a regulatory body that regulates um the mezcal process to make sure that 
you know, you're adhering to the particular codes, whether you make artisanal mezcal or ancestral mezcal or a more industrial mezcal. And that was all in the process of being formed also while I was doing this. So again, talking about timing, our timing was very, very good. And so we worked with a our, our first producer who we're not working with anymore, but we worked with for many, many years. We worked very closely with him on the certification process so that we had a product that was certified to cross borders and followed the regulations of the CRM. And um, yeah, just backtrack a little bit, I mean, I, because I think one of the other things was, right, I, I worked with so many in the beginning to bring to my bar so many different small mezcal producers. And I mean, I mean, really a lot. It wasn't like five or 10. It was, you know, probably closer to probably closer to 40, 45, something like that, that I had bought their mezcal because I liked it. And so the next step really for me was to try to think about this as, okay, if we're going to get involved in this and I'm going to start a brand of liquor with something that's so artisanal and really made on farms, not in factories, and part of a different kind of culture. How, John, John, how do you do this and not destroy the thing you fell in love with in the first place? How do you try to create a business and 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 still care about the right stuff? So that was really something that I grappled with because I, I started this in the first place because I liked the taste of it and I and I really loved I loved so much about Oaxaca, right? So one of the things I thought about was, as I looked out there, was, all right, there's a, so many different kinds of agave that mezcal can be made from. But most of them, especially back in 2003, 2004, in the area in that, of Oaxaca that I was in, were not cultivated agaves. They were what are called silvestres, wild agaves. And the main agave that was cultivated is the one that we use today is called espadine and that's been cultivated for centuries and and grown all over the state of Oaxaca. So I thought okay, let's just start here. If if we're going to try to grow this thing, let's try to grow it with and, and when I say grow this thing, grow this business and make it into a business, let's at least work with something that is at the moment has a path to being sustainable because you have a plant that takes with espadine, roughly eight years to grow, but other agaves that can take as much as 20 years to grow. Um, let's start with something that is sustainable and farmed and usable. Let's start there. The other thing was, let's start also with a flavor that I think is one that's, how shall I put this? Um, a flavor profile that is more approachable than some of the more exotic agaves because as much as I love, you know, so many of the Silvestres, give me a good Tobala, give me an Araqueño, give me a Quiche. Uh, fantastic. They're wonderful. But a, they're not necessarily good for, the, for somebody who for the very first time is beginning to explore mezcal. Um, it's not something that you might come back to again and again and again. And Espadine, I think, is. So I, I the, the, really, my first, the first things that I grappled with were, um, who was I going to work with as a producer? 
did they want to grow their business because I didn't want to force something on somebody else? And was there, was it going to be something that as we grew could be sustainable? And was the flavor profile something that I personally loved and could say, this is great. And I, I, it's not something I'm just going to have a half a shot of and go, Oh, that was delicious. But rather, you know, people who drink will drink two or three of them really enjoy it and, and love it. So that was, that was a you know some of the early stuff that I went through in order to arrive at, at um, you know what goes in the bottle. Wow, yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's definitely definitely a super approachable uh, mezcal. <laughs> so good job with that. <laughs> yeah, and and interesting because you know as one of the producers that I was working with, one of the you know palanqueros. Um, when I was tasting his mezcal, I said, this is just absolutely delicious. And he said, John, a lot of foreigners think that mezcal is supposed to be smoky. And there's some smoke uh, because in the production process, there's smoke all around the palenque and there's all sorts of reasons that there can be smoke. But you have a plant that takes this long to grow and the process is this intensive why would you want to bury the flavor of agave in smoke? You want to taste agave always first. And actually, in his mind, you want to limit the smoke as much as possible because you want people to taste the agave. And I thought, that's interesting because, it makes one, it makes sense. And then he explained to me something that I thought was quite interesting. He said, you know, most gringos and most foreigners think that the smoke comes because you bake the agave in the earth. And he said, is that what you think? And I said, yeah, that's what I've been told by everybody. He said, no, that's not true. And I said, come on, man. He said, no, that's maybe accounts for a very, very small amount. He said, think of it this way. He said, if you were to take a glass of vodka and take a cigarette and blow that smoke into a glass of vodka, you have smoky vodka and it'll taste smoky. So the same thing happens in the distillation process. Palenques are very small places. And usually your oven is very close to the still. You have wood heating your still that's burning, that's putting off smoke. And he said, so if you're distilling, when you open up your oven, your whole palenque is flooded with smoke. And that smoke comes out and paints your distillate. And he said, if you're using cheap wood to heat your, your stills and it's cheap pine or whatever, and very smoky wood, that smoke comes out and paints your distillate. And so the smoke is actually coming from the external environment, not so much from the cooking. And he said, so if you can limit that, limit the amount of smoke in the environment, don't dig up your oven when you're distilling. Use better wood, hardwood when you're distilling. Make sure the wind is blowing in the opposite direction of your, of your stills so that when the distillate's coming out, it's not getting painted with smoke, you don't have a smoky mezcal and you actually get to taste the agave. And I thought, I, you know, it's, I said, it's interesting because I said, I go from palenque to palenque and there are so many mezcals that have zero smoke and, but the process seems exactly the same. And then I go to others where it's very, very, very smoked. And he said, well, I just explained to you the reason. So it was interesting. And I thought that's great because that's, I want people to taste the agave. And so we always, uh, um, I always talk about a little gal as sort of a, a mouthful of espadine agave with just a hint of smoke. Huh. Wow. 
That's a uh, that's a great story. Yeah, I mean, I, I, every time people ask me, I'm like, yeah, it's mezcal. It's it's roasted in the ground for four or five days, and that's that's where you get to smoke. <laughs> I've never heard that kind of like. I've never heard of that from that point of view before. That's uh, that's super, super interesting. Very cool. Um, that, so, so yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, do you want to talk any more about, um, you know, just kind of ha- how you kept growing the brand or, uh, you know, after, you know, you got your, you know, your, your importers and stuff like that. And, you know, what did 2010, 11, 12, 13 kind of look like um, for you in the brand? Well, okay, so you know we, I'm not you know the liquor business as you probably know a little bit, right? I mean it's a it's a it's a very big global expensive business to be in, and I didn't realize most of that along you know at the beginning. I just said we're going to forge ahead and do this the best we can. But the one thing I, I told my crew was that. You know, as this thing gets bigger, it it keeps seeming to get more expensive. And what we have to focus on is a combination of the quality of our mezcal, but also who we are as a company. And I own a bar down here and I have salespeople come in all the time. And the ones I like to work with are the ones who help your business, contribute to your business, are fun, and that so we have to wrap illegal in music, in things that we do in Guatemala, because we work with a lot of NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and I want to work with a team of people who are creative, resourceful, who, who understand the, the quality and respect the quality and the history of Oaxaca and Mezcal, but also understand that drinking is fun and let's stand for something. Let's, let's, yeah. let's stand for something because most of the people I've hired and you, you probably met some of them, Herminio and Gilbert and, yeah. and you yep. can go through, you go through them all, Mac Green and Kalen. Um, none of these guys are fake. They're all, they all are, you know, naturally living a little bit on the outside and have created their own, beautiful little world and are all really generous people. And, and by that, I really, here's, I mean, just give you an example. Um, you know, someone's building a bar and Gilbert shows up out of the blue with some tools and starts working. Not, it doesn't ask for money, doesn't ask for anything. This is just who Gilbert is. Randy in California, you know, goes and, um, you know, brings dinner to uh, dishwashers and barbacks because that's what he used to be for years in San Diego and says, hey, man, you know, I know you guys are all working late tonight. This, they're just generous, cool, fun people who have come up through the industry. And so I said, you know, we have to do that. And we also have to run this thing really, really scrappy and lean because we have no money and that we're going to do everything ourselves. And mm. we have to, and we, and in doing that, we have to create a, an impression that we're bigger than we are so we can attract some of the attention of distributors because the hardest thing about this business, and I don't know if you want to get into all this minutiae here, but the hardest thing about this business is getting people, you can have the greatest product in the world, but the distributors have 10,000 products to sell and they have all this pressure from these massive brands and to get any attention from them is really, really hard. But you have to show that you're creating 
you know, creating something on your own and, and creating some excitement and some, uh, and a real, a real following, uh, of people who want to join what you're doing. And I, I started a little bit, but then I was very lucky to meet people like Gilbert and Herminio and my niece, Kaylin and all these people, because they're just part of this madness. And, and they, they got what I, what I was trying to do and, and put it together. So it was cool. I mean, in 2000, yeah. in 2015, I mean, there was, so there was a lot of little things, you know, we did wild posting. We first started out, you know, again, with no money and just decided, I said, you know, this is, this is like punk, man. This is like punk music. And, um, I've got five people living in one apartment in New York, all sleeping on the floor, paying them air. And I mean, paying them nothing. Uh, because they all love what we're doing, and I was like, guys, here are you know fifty thousand stickers of you know stickers. Stick them all over Manhattan. Put them everywhere. Put them that says illegal mezcal. Uh, you, you've probably seen our logo of the three rabbits. Put that everywhere. Yeah. We just have, a couple of- <laughs> we have to make people you know curious as to who we are and what we're doing. Um, and then we started doing wild postings in New York. We had no money, but we found a printer who would print. 5,000 posters for 700 bucks on newsprint. My guys were going out and postering the town with three rabbits in the word illegal. Um, and we're doing it all ourselves at night. Grab your cell phone. And I was up there and Kalen was up there and the crew. And, you know, you get on one corner, you get on the next corner and let's cover the town. What happens if we get arrested? What are they going to do to us? What, I don't care. Let's just get this up and let people see the word mezcal and, and try to get it in people's, in people's, uh, you know, consciousness. And, so it was cool. And I think, the, you know, it, it was that kind of stuff is fun and what makes this whole crazy business worthwhile. And uh, so we did that. And then we created the Illegal Music Series uh, to help su- support bars that wanted to have live music. I love I love live music. And I, I grew up in New York. And there was a period there where it seemed to me, at least, that live music was harder and harder to find because... Venues didn't venues didn't want to pay musicians and and it was just so we decided, hey, let's let's report a handful of bars and pay for their live music so that musicians can, you know, come out and and make somewhat of a living, even if they're they're not necessarily professional musicians, but they're people who are either coming up in the industry or or whatever. And so we we put that together and partnered with some bars and helped support some bars and it it uh somehow yeah. somehow has come together i mean i'm not you know it had a lot of problems <laughs> along the way and we well, almost made a business a hundred times yeah, but it's come together like i mean you you know you talked about your team and when i first you know heard about you know you and you know, i ran the bowery hotel program for a while and and illegal you know came in and um you know i was like oh it's such a cool brand they're doing such a good job of like marketing this brand but then i started to meet you know, I met you back in the day and then I met Kaylin and I met Arminio and I'm like, Oh, it's like it, the people are the brand. Like I was like, I, I really thought it was like some, I'm like, what marketing company do they have? It's just so cool and authentic and rock and roll. And but then I was like, Oh, it's, it's the people like everyone, everyone involved in your company, you know, going to Gilbert is just the authenticity that you bring. Like, I mean, you can't, design and develop that it's really you know i mean obviously comes from you and then goes to kaylin and arminio and gilbert and and it just really spreads out so i mean my hat's off to you for like you know finding him or bringing bringing those people around and letting them just be themselves um you know i i you know ran bar programs for almost 20 years and 
it's really hard to find people one happy in their jobs and two people that are authentic in their job. You know, they kind of put on a suit or they put on a tie or they put on a ripped t-shirt because they think they have to be something. But like, I mean, your, your team and just, they are who they are, you know, they're all artists and musicians and just cool people and super nice, like big, big old hearts. Um, you know, so yeah, man, that's just the, the authenticity that you have around your brand, man. It's just, just super cool. So I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. And I, I, you just nailed it though. They're all, they're all real. And, uh, and they all contribute. I mean, every single one of them has ideas and have had ideas that we've, that we've used. And, and so a bunch of them are musicians, you know, that's, that's a good chunk of their life. So they can contribute that others are painters or illustrators. So they add to the, the game and everybody's, everybody's creating and everybody has an input and uh and they they really are i mean it's it's amazing because they that they're not corporate none of them are corporate none of them have had a corporate job right i mean that's which is fantastic they've been with you like a decade but they're they're definitely still not corporate yeah and uh yeah but they've they've learned the lingo and learned the game but they're still very much who they are and they've got uh some really you know they got a lot, a lot of 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 solid good in them, and uh, and I love being around them. So it makes it it makes it a lot of fun. Yeah. Nice man. Well, I still I still love when they roll up to my my Arte Agave events. It's like there's no marketing agency. It's just here comes Gilbert and Arminio and the and the hammer and the drill and the the boards and you know we did an event in Texas and Arminio found these pallets on the side of the I was like where'd you get these pallets he's like we found them last night <laughs> I was like what yeah <laughs> and he built this fence and a bar and I, I just I love it I mean even even watching you guys grow and still seeing the team just rolling with like cardboard signs and all this like other cool chashi kind of stuff and um it's cool man so how do you I mean now that you know you're obviously probably growing you know your team's probably growing you know, how do you keep, you know, that authenticity that you've started for so long and how do you keep that amongst the new employees? And obviously you've got good people working for you. So I'm, you know, sure they're, they're doing a good training process, but you know, how how do you keep it from, you know, your message from you to, you know, I don't know how many employees illegal has now, but how do you keep it to the new person that was hired in whatever state, you know, how how do you keep that message going? Well, I think one, because, you know, we've really, you know, we've been imported since 2009, so we're going on 11 years, and we've been doing this since 2003. We have um, most of the people we hire have been following us for a long time, wanting to work with us. We've worked with them in events or a handful of other other you know in, in some form or another, and so they're very familiar with us, the culture, and it gives us a chance to select really well because we we already like them and we already understand that they know the brand know the culture they've already contributed in some way so that's a real plus and that makes things a lot easier and then um especially right now given what's going on in the states and everything i'm on a once a week call with the entire team which is about 43 44 some odd people in the u.s and i'm on the phone with all of them just to give them an update on you know what's happening what I see in the industry, thank some people for something interesting that they may have done, um, and stay in touch with them that way. Um, 
which is really important. And then we try to meet the whole team about once a year, just all together. Sit so down. I, I, I see, you know, the guys on the West Coast probably once or twice a year. The guys in New York probably about four or five times a year. The guys in Texas once a year. So I'm actually there and with them, and with them not just for a day, but you know, weeks at a time. This year we took a good chunk of our team uh, to to Dallas for a meeting. But prior to that, uh, Michelle, who you probably have met, Michelle Ivy, took uh, a good bit of our team down to Brownsville at the border to help with the migrants on the other side trying to come in from Mexico into the United States. And the crew was there helping bring food across, books across, tents, flashlights, because uh, a lot of these people are those who have been deported, but who actually have family in the States and are waiting to get visas approved, which is really probably not going to happen now. And Michelle, uh, you know, said, you know, we, we, this is, I've got, this was, this was right around Christmas. She said, I've got a Christmas vacation. The hell with that. We've got this problem going on at the border and I'm going to go do that. She went and did it solo at the border for about two weeks and then said, Hey, we need to take the whole team over there and get our team to help. So it's things like that, that, um, and our team then went over there and with Herminio and, and, uh, Steve Laycock and Matt Green and Kaylin, a big, a bunch of them and a bunch of the new people. And they saw what was going on and they were like, this is, this is really, this is terrible. This is fucked up. The people on the other side of the border are really hurting. Let's see what we can do to help money, raise money for this organization in Brownsville that are trying to help people on the other side of the border. And they did a, a little sort of GoFundMe. It wasn't exactly a GoFundMe. I think they made, they'd maybe raise five dollars or $600 and raise $16,000, $16,000, excuse me, $16,000 in about four hours, just from the bartending community pitched wow. in and to help this program in Brownsville. So I think that we've got a couple really, we've got so many good people in our company. I, I hope I'm not like over, I don't know, over pitching how much I like my company. <laughs> We've got so many good hey, people, and so many people who are leaders like Carminios like who really who are really good at inspiring others to remember what we're about beyond just selling mezcal, which was also, of course, what we're about. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, go go ahead and pat your team on the back, man. Like I said, I, and everyone you mentioned, I know very well, and they're just great people. But you know, to me, it kind of you know it starts with with you letting like. You know, I've worked in the bar industry for so long and, you know, there's so many, sometimes you see new, new beverage directors come in and they beat their chest and they're like, this is how we're going to do it. We're doing it this way and doing it that way. And, you know, you get people that just know what they're doing. It's like, kind of let them, let them be, you know, give them a little bit of guidance and kind of let them go and see what they do and see what they can develop. And, you know, it's almost like you have like dozens of mini CEO slash entrepreneurs on your hands, just kind of creating and doing their own thing. So that's, that's super cool, man. So yeah, go ahead and give them, pat them on the back. <laughs> They're good people. <laughs> They're cool. cool. Um, so what, what's next for you, man? Like what is, you know, you seem like someone who's constantly thinking or moving and growing is just keep, keep building illegal or what, what, what other, you have any side hustles that you're working on right now or anything you can, you can disclose that you're you're trying to work on or businesses or anything else in the works? Well, let's see. Um, we, 
I mean, right now, I, I think I'm, I'm kind of like a lot of everybody where because we're closed down here, trying to do everything that we can to, you know, maintain the bars. I've got, a, you know, the mezcal bar down here and Cafe No Say, and I've got a little restaurant down here and keep everybody employed, even though there's no work, no tourism. That's a that's a big piece. Um, and it's a it's quite a challenge. And but about a year ago, um, we partnered with a, a good friend in Oaxaca and opened a little bar called Bar Illegal. Um, and so that's a new new project and it's getting off the ground and it's it has some of the similarities of Cafe No Say. It's got a great live music scene, uh, but it's got a lot more sort of, you know, just a lot more Mexican flavor to it. And it's yeah. it's a it's a dark dive bar, but that's a, a that project was uh, it's was getting on its feet and really beginning to do well and take on a life of its own and then you know this this uh, virus has hit and but I can't wait to get back to that we were building out a little roof deck up there um so that's something and what else let's see uh, I just got a bunch of chickens at my house um <laughs> uh, I had a, one of my dogs chased a rooster into the house I live on this I live on a coffee farm and uh, one of my dogs came running into the house with a rooster in his mouth and so we rescued the rooster and and the rooster decided he wanted to stay in the house. So I threw the dogs outside. And I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I'm drinking some mezcal, so I may as well. And, uh, and then the rooster started getting lonely. So I have this friend who uh, who has some chickens. And I said, you know, get this guy a girlfriend. And so we got him. So the rooster's name is Raul, and his girlfriend's name is Roxy. And then I just went and bought a bunch of little chicks who should grow into laying hens. So that's a new project. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> uh, and this rooster does not know how to tell time because he seems to crow whenever the hell he wants but it's great it's nice having a, a crowing rooster and uh that's cool <laughs> that's awesome man that's awesome um well cool man i i listen i appreciate your time i know you gotta go um you know i know you're super busy down there and, um so are you I, I don't know if you said it before is is cafe no say open now to serve or are you guys you guys are on a strict no you know, close down so we've been a strict close down for going on about two and a half weeks and it'll be at least another two weeks but probably at least another month and that's across the whole country bars and restaurants are closed the uh the current president is a, a doctor and i think he's really taking very much the right approach uh it's going to be hard mm-hmm everybody the hotels and the whole tourism industry but it's a it's a poor country with a you know with not a very good infrastructure and certainly not good health care so i think he's making the right move and so yeah we're we're shut down but um yeah well i, I saw you guys are doing um i saw kaylin posted a bunch of stuff that you guys are doing in new york trying to help out some some musicians and, and artists um is that something that's happening across america or is that just like a new york sort of no, thing that's happening not even just across america but, but, but we'll do it out of mexico and do it out of guatemala and probably do some in europe so years ago on my menu uh, was a thing that i called the musicians breakfast because we always had musicians passing out in the bar and it was uh, two cigarettes some advil uh, a hard-boiled egg and a shot of mezcal um and Later, that evolved into just a shot of mezcal and a, and a beer on our menu. So 
Kalen and uh, and Matt and and everybody put together a thing called the Musicians Breakfast, which is from your home. So we have a bunch of musicians who are out, who are out of work, many who we had booked for gigs, and we're like, all right, you know what? We can still we'll still pay you to do something out of your home, and we want you to get in your kitchen and record yourself singing. You know. 15, 20 minutes of music and uh, have a shot of mezcal and we're going to call the series The Musician's Breakfast and uh, let's get it up online. So we're doing that and then we've got a couple of podcasts going in the evening called The Couch Sessions. Uh, but The Musician's Breakfast, I just I just uh, hired two of my musicians from down here just this afternoon uh, to do part of the series and then we've got a couple of people in Europe and then a couple of the musicians who play for me in Mexico will, will be doing it also. So it'll probably actually... I'm hoping that it'll actually evolve into something bigger after all of this dies, but becomes sort of like a, the tiny, yeah. the tiny couch sessions or whatever that's called, tiny desk series. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> wow, um, that's cool. That's cool that you guys are, are still continuing and getting money r- directly into artists' hands, and uh, uh, that's amazing. Um, well, thanks, brother man. I appreciate your uh, your time and taking the time to talk to me and. Uh, you know, I'm like you, man. I just I just launched this podcast uh, about a week or so ago. It's something I've been trying to, you know, put together for a few months. So I I, I thank you for being one of my first guests, and um, you know, look, good luck to you, man, and, and and appreciate everything that you've been doing for the industry and and your team in New York, and uh, you know, just just supporting local artists and musicians, man. It's super cool. So thank you so much. Back at you. Thank you. I I really appreciate it. And uh, when the dust settles and I get back up in New York, I will. I will hunt you down. It'd be good to see you. Thank you. And Hell yeah, man. The podcast. Thanks, brother. Yep. Uh, appreciate it. All right. Well, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Get me posted. Cheers. Thanks.